What's a golfer's favorite type of music? Swing. Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. So I don't know what it is, maybe I'm just unlucky, but everything that could go wrong podcast-wise in the past uh, few weeks has gone wrong. You know, I messed up my fingers on that soldering iron, and uh, I just got surgery on my mouth a couple days ago. So if there's a lot of cuts or me stumbling over my words in the episode, just bear with me. I'm still pretty sore. Anyway, for the first bit of our news this week, I'm not really sure what it is about Warm Audio, but I absolutely eat up all of their reissue stuff. Now, if you're not aware of them already, Warm Audio is a gear company out of Texas that specializes in recreating vintage pieces of audio gear. They made a name for themselves by starting out with rack mount units and microphones like their clones of the LA-2A leveling amplifier, Pultec EQ, and the Neumann U87. But as of 2020, they branched out into pedals when they released the Foxy Tone Box and the Jet Phaser, clones of the Fox Tone Machine and the Roland Jet Phaser respectively. I picked up both of those and the level of detail on these things is incredible. It's all the way down to new old stock transistors, carbon film resistors, not to mention the velvet flocking on the enclosure of the Foxy Tone Box, just like the original. The Jet Phaser, they absolutely killed it. I'm not usually a fan of phaser pedals, but I love this one and it's got vintage accuracy in spades. So much so that they even recreate redundant parts of the circuit, like the battery DC adapter switch. You won't find that on most modern pedals. I think it was last year that they came out with a Centavo. It was a clone of the ever-popular Klon Centaur. This time including a mod switch to add some more low-end, but you get the point. They make high-quality, extremely accurate reproductions of vintage units. Warm Audio has just announced the release of two new pedals they're dropping. The Mutation Phaser 2 and the ODD Box, clones of the Mutron Phaser 2 and the Fulltone OCD. The Mutron is one of those classic units that everybody hunts after, commonly used by famous artists like Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins and Raman Trauer. It's got three controls, one for rate, which goes all the way from a tenth of a sweep a second, to 18 full sweeps per second, a very wide-ranging depth control, and a feedback to get you all kinds of swooshy, noisy, phasing nonsense that you love. The only difference between Warren Audio's clone and the original is the lack of a power switch found in the original unit and the placement of a 9-volt jack instead of a hardwired power cable, both things that won't affect the actual sound at all and are really just modern quality of life updates. The ODD box, or the odd box, seems to be kind of, well, odd. <laughs> for Warm Audio, at least. Most of the units that they recreate have been out of production for at least a decade or so, except for their clone of the Zen Drive, but that's extremely hard to find in and of itself. The Fulltone OCD only went out of production in August of 2022 when Fulltone closed, although there's rumors that Mike Fuller is building them to order still. I guess the point is the OCD isn't really as unobtainium as some of the other things they clone, and you can easily find one on the used market, although you'll probably end up paying a little more than it's worth due to the hype around the device and Fulltone being closed. If you're curious about the OCD or the Oddbox, 
I don't have Warm Audio's reproduction, but I've actually got a version 1.2 OCD here. This pedal is basically a Marshall flavor drive. It's got three controls, one each for volume, tone, and drive, as well as a two-way toggle switch with high-pass and low-pass filters. It has the capability to run at either 9 volts or 18 volts for increased headroom, and it's honestly a really useful pedal. It's not something that I personally pick up often, but if I'm going for that sort of cranked British sound, this is easily a first choice. I think you'll agree with me after you hear it. Sounds pretty good, huh? I know I saw a few different YouTube videos on the release of the Oddbox, and I think it was Ryan Burke of 60 Cycle Hum that actually opened them up and determined that they even went so far as to cover the internal of the 9-volt jack and hot glue, just like the original. I mean, if that's not attention to detail, I don't know what is. If you're looking to pick one of these up for yourself, the Mutation Phaser is selling for $149, and the ODD box is selling for a cool $119. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about the release of Squire's new line of Paranormal series guitars, one model of which very much reminded me of a Les Paul Jr., but with a Strat body. It's called the Stratasonic. While the Strat body is unmistakable, the Stratasonic really does seem to have quite a bit of Gibson-esque DNA in it, with a painted headstock, single volume and tone knob, three-way toggle switch as opposed to a blade switch, two P90 pickups, and a wraparound bridge. I mean, even the pickguard here looks somewhat similar to the Les Paul Jr. Apparently, some of these Stratasonics had more than just some Gibson slash Epiphone inspiration, with a few of them even having the Epiphone logo stamped on the underside of their bridges. Yeah, a Squire guitar with Epiphone parts. It's like an Android running iPhone's iOS or Burger King selling a burger with Big Mac sauce. It's pretty weak in terms of news, but it certainly confirms something that was always more likely than not. A lot of these big brands are ordering parts from the same manufacturers, for at least their overseas lines. It leads to the conclusion that regardless of which brand you're buying an overseas manufactured guitar from, it's likely that you're getting comparable quality in terms of hardware. Fender has since said that they're working with their parts manufacturer to ensure that it doesn't happen again, but they still acknowledge that it happened. I just thought it'd be funny to touch on this quick little glitch in the matrix, gear-wise. There's been lots of talk recently about AI programs such as ChatGPT doing some pretty impressive things. Everything from full-on conversations to helping people with their work, even going so far as some people having ChatGPT write and fix entire lines of programs worth of code for different projects. Of course, there's a big worry there that ChatGPT and programs like it will end up replacing jobs via automation, and I completely understand why people would be worried about that. It 100% is a scary concept to think about, so much so that some governmental bodies are even considering legislation that requires people working on developing AI to have a license and follow strict legal guidelines. One concern with this AI is that it'll be able to take over the arts, with AI creating pieces of art that are admittedly very impressive, all the way to one AI even creating a song that it fully faked Canadian rappers Drake and The Weeknd collaborating together on. It sounded like they really did it. It was really good. 
While larger scale topics like that seem to be the bread and butter of AI, it seems that the smaller st scale stuff isn't really inside its wheelhouse, especially when you get more specific in terms of music gear. If you guys tuned in for our episode on Florida Georgia Line, I actually asked ChatGPT what gear I should use to get the tone before doing anything else, and then we went through the regular tone chasing section of the episode and compared results at the end. ChatGPT's recommendations were less than stellar and extremely vague for some reason, but it seems like I'm not the only one experimenting with AI and guitar gear. Canadian gear manufacturer Rev, famous for their flagship Generator 120 amplifier and G-Series amp-in-a-box pedals, have released a new overdrive called the Chatbreaker. Rev claims that the design of this pedal came from ChatGPT, and that they kept trying to get the AI to create a guitar pedal that they would then produce and bring to market. But apparently, the AI wasn't able to create a full schematic by itself, just isolated bits and pieces. So Dan Trudeau, the president of Rev, says that after reviewing everything ChatGPT was spinning out, it appeared to all piece together to be a form of the coveted Marshall Bluesbreaker, a light to mid-gain overdrive released by Marshall back in 1992 that's become a fan favorite ever since. Rev's new Chatbreaker pedal certainly does the Bluesbreaker thing in spades. It's got three controls for drive, level, and tone, just like a classic Bluesbreaker, and it's got that great low-mid sort of crunch that Bluesbreakers are sought after for. The pedal also includes true bypass switching and a two-year warranty. It's selling brand new right now for $199, so it's in line price-wise with other Bluesbreaker clones like the JHS Morning Glory, but curiously cheaper than Marshall's reissue, which goes for $249. You know, the pedal is cool and all that, don't get me wrong, I like Bluesbreakers, they're a blast to play, but what I'm really curious about here is seeing the chat logs that led to this. Rev is somewhat vague about how they came to the Chatbreaker as a conclusion. I mean, that part from Dan Trudeau about saying that they asked it to create a pedal, didn't get many results, and pieced together a Bluesbreaker circuit by interpretation is literally all we've gotten out of them. I'd still want to see what those chat logs actually look like, and how much of the design they actually got from ChatGPT versus what they had to do themselves. For some reason, I have this gut feeling that it really wasn't much, and R&D at Rev ended up doing most of the heavy lifting. How many AIs does it take to get a working schematic of a bluesbreaker? Just like a Tootsie Pop, the world may never know. <laughs> so this topic isn't so much about a famous piece of gear as it is about something completely utilitarian in nature, that's 100% necessary to consider when putting together your rig. Buffers. I touched on this topic a while back when we did our recording tip segment about using buffered bypass or true bypass pedals, but it seems like a lot of guitarists are confused about what a buffer actually does for you and when a buffer is needed. To start, buffers are simply an active circuit that adjusts impedance. The signal coming out of your guitar has an intrinsic trait to it called impedance, or how difficult it is to pass an electric signal out of the guitar. This impedance is typically pretty high, sitting in the realm of 5,000 ohms to about 19,000 ohms, and is dependent on the impedance of the pickups in your guitar. If you've ever looked at the user manual for some of your audio devices, check the specification section, and the manufacturer may have been kind enough to list the input and output impedances of the device. There's no hard and fast rules here. For an example, this TC Electronic Crescendo has an input impedance of 500,000 ohms and an output impedance of 500 ohms while this Proco Rat 2 has an input impedance of 500,000 ohms and an output impedance of 1,000 ohms. Now both of those pedals are true bypass, meaning there's no intended impedance adjustment on the pedal whatsoever, no buffer, 
the circuit spits out whatever it's going to spit out. However, if we look at some buffered bypass pedals, such as MXR, BOSS, we'll see a very common value begin to crop up. A 1 mega ohm, or 1 million ohm, input impedance, and a 1000 ohm output impedance, such as this BOSS HM2 heavy metal, or this MXR carbon copy. While the presence of these values alone don't exactly generate the presence of a buffer, we only know this because we know that BOSS and MXR typically use buffers in almost every pedal they make, these input and output impedance values are the ideal ratings for a buffer circuit. We're trying to take a very high impedance signal and step it down to a very low impedance signal. Now other than crunching numbers and giving data nerds like me something to salivate over, why would we want to change the impedance? It has to do with this nifty little trait called capacitance. Capacitance is the measure of a component's ability to store a charge. Your tone control in your guitar actually uses a capacitor to shunt some of the high end on your signal to ground, making your guitar's output signal less bright and more mellow. On a Stratocaster, this tone control capacitor is usually 0.022 microfarads, or 22,000 picofarads for reference. While capacitors are components designed to store a specific amount of charge, everything your signal passes through has some form of capacitance, including your guitar and patch cables. As a general rule of thumb, one foot of cable has about 30 picofarads of capacitance. This means it would take a little more than 733 feet of guitar cable to have the same effect as a fully rolled off tone control, taking us from this to this. Now is 730 feet of cable realistic for most people? Of course not. It's almost two and a half football fields worth of cable. However, there's still a noticeable difference between having our tone control at full and at about 90%. We lose just a tad bit of high end there, the equivalent of about 70 feet of cable. While this isn't a huge difference, it can still take away some of the sparkle and clarity of your overall tone, giving you the feeling that something is just a little bit wrong, like a thin blanket thrown over your speaker. It may not seem like much, but especially if you have a large pedal board, all your patch cables and your guitar cables add up after a while. If I use a 25-foot cable from my guitar to my board, a 25-foot cable from my board to my amp, and I have 17 pedals on a board with a 6-inch patch cable in between each one, that adds up to nearly 60 feet of cable, almost at our 90% tone control position. For reference, here's our guitar plugged straight into the amp again. And for this next part, I kind of went overboard. <laughs> I took all of the guitar cables that I own, about 250 feet or so worth, and I hooked them up between a bunch of pedals to introduce the maximum amount of capacitance that I could. So here's what it sounds like with a guitar running through 250 feet worth of cable before hitting the amp. Pretty bad. So how do we fix this? How do we remove the tone-sucking vampire of long runs of cable? With buffers, of course. If I take that same rig with all that cable, and I throw a single buffer at both the beginning and the end of the board, we now get this. Indistinguishable from plugging straight into the amp, all from the simple buffer circuits. The buffers are acting as a form of amplifier, strengthening our signal while bringing the impedance down to a much more manageable 1000 to 100 ohms. 
So now that we know what buffers do, let's talk about how and when to use them. First off, if you're a player that runs their guitar straight into the amp, you likely don't need a buffer. Unless you're using an extremely long cable to bring your guitar to your amp, longer than say 15 feet or so, a buffer really won't do anything for you. This also includes if you're using some sort of wireless rig to get your guitar signal to your amp. Likewise, if you've got a pedal board with less than 15 feet of cable between your guitar and your amp, you likely don't need a buffer. If you have a guitar that uses active pickups, you can likely skip the input buffer, as most active pickup systems have a preamp which already puts out a relatively low impedance signal. A quick and easy way to test if you need a buffer is to find a relatively short guitar cable and plug it into your amp. Play it for a little while, listen how it sounds, then use the cable you'll regularly play with, including any pedals or your pedal board in between your guitar and your amp with all the pedals turned off, then see if it sounds any different. If the tone with your real rig sounds more dull than your short cable rig, chances are you could benefit from the use of a buffer. For those of us who do need to use a buffer, you'll always want to place the buffer at the beginning of your pedal board and another one at the end of your pedal board the best results. If you don't have enough spots on your board or enough ports on your power supply, it's completely fine to just stick with a buffer at the end. One thing to be cautious of is that some pedals, particularly vintage style fuzzes and univibes, don't play nice with buffers, creating a very strange sound. These pedals are likely to have an input impedance of 500,000 ohms or higher, and a lower input impedance won't allow the fuzz pedal to interact properly with the volume knob when you try to clean it up. For example, if I take this Dunlop FFM3 fuzz face and I plug the guitar directly into it, it sounds like this. But if I put a buffer before the FFM3, in between the guitar and the fuzz face, it's a whole different story. It's just something to be aware of when you're planning out your pedal board. If you have a pedal that needs to be first in the chain, like a fuzz face, just place your buffer directly after it. Now for some reason, buffers are surrounded by quite a bit of hype and mysticism. For years, pedal manufacturers have touted true bypass as a feature, with many on online forums spinning stories about how buffers suck tone and true bypass is the way to go, but this is entirely a misconception. True bypass was the way that original pedals were wired. It's not some fancy new advent of technology or anything. All the original classics were true bypass. It wasn't until Boss came around in the 1970s that buffered guitar pedals became common. In fact, a majority of the most popular pedal brands, such as MXR, Boss, and even the Klon Centaur used buffered bypass wiring in their circuits. These brands have been staples of pedal boards across the globe for decades, and nobody's out here petitioning them to switch to true bypass. The good news here is that if you don't want to shell out for a boring old buffer, you probably already have a pedal that has a buffer inside it. Most tuners include one, or at least the option to switch between true or buffered bypass, and many delays and reverbs include a buffer as a mechanism for allowing the trails to continue to pass even after the effect is bypassed. If you're not sure, just check your pedal's user manual to see if it lists a buffered or a true bypass. 
While some of these pedals may be listed as having buffered bypass, it's always a good idea to check the specifications to see if the impedance has the magic ratio of 100 mega ohm input impedance and 1000 to 100 ohm output impedance, as anything else may introduce some coloration to the tone. Buffers in that magic ratio will be a clean, neutral source of retaining your high end. Now before you go out and start rearranging your pedal board with all buffered pedals or placing a buffer in between each pedal to completely eradicate any tone sucking, like all good things, buffers need to be used in moderation. Too many buffers in a row can generate a massive loss in volume. You generally lose about 0.6 decibels of volume with each buffer, but if you throw too many in a row, it certainly adds up over time, taking your amp that was on that sweet, sweet edge of breakup threshold back into squeaky clean territory. For example, here's what it sounds like plugging directly into my amp set to the edge of breakup. And here's that same rig, but this time with 20 buffers in between. Yeah, I went overboard again. But this equates to a volume loss of about 12 decibels. Too much of a good thing can always be a bad thing. Kind of like yesterday, when I used two tablespoons of chili powder when the recipe called for two teaspoons. The only other real disadvantage to buffers is the fact that if you run your pedals off of 9-volt batteries, buffered pedals will not pass signal if they lose power, even when bypassed. Buffered circuits are active and they require current to pass signal, while many true bypass pedals will still pass a signal even with no power source connected. This isn't true for all of them necessarily, but a vast majority will. While this may not be an issue for some people, for the gigging musician with only a few pedals on their board, it can make the difference between having to stop in the middle of a set to swap batteries and being able to work your way around losing the functionality of one of your pedals until the end of the song. All that being said, if you test out your rig using the method I mentioned before and determine you could use a buffer or two, here are some great options. Like I already mentioned, many pedals already have buffered bypass in them. It's just a matter of checking the manual or the spec sheet of your pedal to see if it works. Boss and MXR have some great buffers in almost all their pedals, Although some people tend to complain about the buffer in the analog chorus from MXR, but I've never had an issue with it. If you want a dedicated pe pedal buffer, you can go with any of the following options, which are all pretty inexpensive compared to your bona fide effects pedals. Speaking of bona fide, $69 will get you your very own TC Electronic bona fide buffer, a mini enclosure, single input and output buffer, which takes your signal from 1 mega ohm and steps it down to 100 ohms. What I really like about the Bonafide buffer is it has an intelligent bypass circuit. This feature means that if the Bonafide buffer loses power, it instantly switches to true bypass in order to still allow your signal through, negating the issues of your pedal board losing power and cutting your signal out completely mid-set. It's a really neat feature if you need to rely on it night after night. Kansas City-based pedal company JHS also has their own buffer in the form of the Little Black buffer. This device costs 85 bucks, and it also comes in a mini enclosure but the jacks are actually positioned on the same, longer side of the enclosure, allowing for unique placement like on the outside border of your board. This little guy would work great for saving some real estate for pedals that you actually need to operate with a foot switch on the board regularly, 
keeping it out of the way without requiring strange or oddly positioned runs of cable. Stepping up our game a little bit, we've got the MXR Custom Audio Electronics Buffer for 99 bucks. Now up to this point, both of the buffers that I already talked about were plug and play. They've got no external features or controls other than the ability to change the impedance of your rig. The MXR CAE buffer actually includes a fader with 6 decibels of gain on tap, 2 toggle switches for a low and high cut, and an additional unbuffered output to connect to any pedals that don't respond well to a buffer, as well as an additional 9 volt output to avoid taking up a precious power supply port for a more utilitarian pedal. There's a whole lot to love here. If for some reason you've now decided that buffers are your favorite type of pedals, well, you are a crazy person. But that's okay, I still love you. But you might want to look into the Earthquaker device's Swiss things. And, you know, therapy. For 249 bucks, you get a beast of a buffer unit, which includes an onboard boost of up to 20 decibels, controllable via an expression pedal, a separate tuner output, two separate amplifier outputs for dual amp setups or the wet-dry rigs that we'll talk about later, and two separate buffered loops that you can switch on and off. As far as buffers go, the Swiss things is like the Rolls-Royce of them all. You know one of the hardest questions that I've ever been asked? Other than, will that be a medium or a large shake, of course? Who's your favorite band? It's such a loaded question. For some reason, I feel like it defines my personality to the person who asked it. Or like, somehow every band I've ever liked is listening in and is going to be ashamed of me if I don't name them immediately. I don't know why it's such a difficult question. And while the honest answer changes pretty much weekly, there's one band that I've stuck by for quite a long time, being a fan of almost every release of theirs and following along with them since I first heard them. A Day to Remember. The first time that I remember hearing them was on the local rock radio station. I grew up right around Orlando in Central Florida, and I listened to 1011 WJRR nearly every night when I went to sleep. In fact, I remember I had this huge stereo system that I ripped out of the garage. It was so big that I couldn't even fit it on the desk in my bedroom, so I had to set it on top of the dresser in the closet. Now, around this time in 2010, A Day to Remember really hadn't become that big yet. They just released their album, What Separates Me From You, which would really serve to put them on the map. The two songs that got the most radio airtime on 101 were definitely All I Want and It's Complicated. I'm not really sure what drew me to them in particular, but pretty soon I found myself playing the songs on repeat whenever I could on YouTube, and eventually picking up the guitar and trying to play them as some of my first tunes. It's a really fond memory, especially bolstered by the fact that A Day to Remember was from Ocala, it was a little over an hour away from my hometown, practically next door, so it really made me think that if they could do it, I could do it too. And, you know, they're an internationally touring rock band with seven studio albums, and I'm just a guy in a room talking about them. We see how that turned out. Anyway, since starting this show, I always wanted to feature their tone, but I've been putting it off for two reasons. One, Kevin Scaff, their lead guitarist, changes his rig more than I change my pants. And I change my pants at least every day, sometimes twice. I'm not gross. I know that comparison could be interpreted either way. If I changed my pants as often as Brian May changed his rig, they'd probably be permanently fused to my body. Two, while A Day to Remember might not be remotely the most popular artist I've featured on the show, they were a formative part of my experiences as a growing guitar player. And looking back on it, it's something that I want to get right as an homage to my teenage self. 
It's almost more important to me than doing someone like John Mayer or Jimi Hendrix because of how personal the topic is. Either way, I hope you guys enjoy it. But before we get to the tone, let's talk about their history. A Day to Remember was founded after five friends, vocalist Jeremy McKinnon, guitarist Tom Denny and Neil Westfall, bassist Joshua Woodard, and drummer Bobby Scruggs decided to start a band called End of an Era in 2003 after playing with various bands in the local Ocala area. The band played seven shows in 2003 and released an EP titled Halos for Heroes, Dirt for the Dead, in the following year available for sale only at the band's concerts. A Day to Remember received their first record deal in 2005 with South Georgia-based pop-punk label Indianola. This led to the release of their first full album, and their name was Treason, that same year. While the album only sold 10,000 copies, it got the band's name into the scene and it set the stage for further success. Joshua Woodard contacted an A&R for Victory Records, another mainly punk rock-focused label, this time based out of Chicago. When the band played there in 2006, a Victory representative went to watch them play and offered them a five-record contract with the label. It was around this time that Bobby Scruggs left the band and was replaced on the drums by Alex Shellnut. This contract led to their second album, For Those Who Have Heart, which was released in early 2007 and placed number 17 on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart, a chart specifically for up-and-coming artists breaking into the main popular music charts. The band found their first international tour in 2008 when playing shows in the UK, and their newfound fame allowed them to tour in support of Silverstein, then moving on to playing festivals such as Bamboozle, Download, and Warp Tour. After touring through Australia in the end of 2008, A Day to Remember released their third album, Homesick, in 2009, hitting number one on the top independent album chart after it sold over 200,000 copies. During the tour celebrating the release of Homesick, Tom Denny suffered a broken wrist, and guitarist Kevin Scaff of Four Letter Live filled in for a portion of the tour. It was during this period that the band also released their second Pop Goes Punk style cover, the phrase Over My Head, supplementing their previous cover of Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone. And I'll admit it, I am a huge Punk Goes Pop fan. I know some people aren't crazy about it, but I really enjoy the punk spin that a lot of these bands put on popular songs. It really just makes it that much better for me. You know, sometimes I'll be somewhere like a grocery store or a mall, and I'll hear a song like Since You've Been Gone playing over the speakers, you know, kind of like mentally following along to it. But it'll throw me for a loop when it gets to the bridge where, you know, in my head, there should be a screaming breakdown. And it's just regular soft singing. I know, it's weird. Anyway, Kevin Scaff's temporary guitar duties became permanent after Tom Denny announced that he and the band were splitting amicably so he could focus on personal endeavors. The nice thing about all this was that Tom Denny still remained an active part of the band, albeit in the background. He assisted with writing and recording material, and he's even been featured in a few different subtle nods, like the album cover for What Separates Me From You, an arcade owner in the video for Second Sucks, and the narrator in the video for Right Back At It Again. During 2009, the band got another big marker of fame when two of their songs made it into popular video games Guitar Hero World Tour and Rock Band. I mean, come on. I know Guitar Hero and Rock Band have sort of fallen by the wayside now, but back in the 2000s, if your song was in one of those games, you knew you had made it. They also played their first headlining tour in late 2009, their first time not serving as an opening act in the genre. From 2010 to 2011, the band continued to tour and play various festivals while also tracking their fourth album titled What Separates Me From You. In January of 2011, the band released the music video for the single All I Want on MTV. And if you're into the punk rock scene and you haven't seen the video for the song, you need to watch it. 
you'll see all kinds of familiar faces from bands like Trivium and Pierce the Veil. Now, in the end of 2011, things begin to get a little dicey with Victory Records. Remember that five-album contract that the band signed? So far, under Victory, the band has only released three records. For those who have heart, Homesick, and What Separates Me From You, leaving two more albums to release. So let's take a pause real quick from the history lesson, and let's look at how record labels like Victory work. Releasing an album is expensive. Very expensive. Studio time costs anywhere between like 50 and 250 bucks an hour. So if we take a conservative middle ground at 125 bucks an hour and assume that a band works quickly, taking about 90 hours to record, mix, and master a full-length album, you're looking at over $11,000 in studio fees alone. While that doesn't seem like a lot, that's merely just to get the album finished. It doesn't include things like graphic design fees for the album art, the cost to make the CDs and cases, ship them to different stores, and even convince record stores to carry your CDs. For small groups, this can be an extremely daunting concept, and large record labels like UMG, Warner, and Atlantic aren't likely to front the cost for small bands that don't have a footing in the industry to produce albums. Enter smaller record labels like Victory. These labels typically specialize in a genre of music, and their business model is a sort of musical gambling. They propose longer, multi-album contracts, agreeing to front the cost of studio time, gear, CD production, and use of their retail distribution network in the hopes that the bands that they sign will gain a following and fame while under contract with a label. If the band makes it big, the label reaps the benefit of huge sales from a small investment. If the band doesn't find success, the label essentially eats the cost of a failed act. In the case of A Day to Remember, Victory Records really lucked out, signing a relatively unknown band at the time who blew up in popularity midway through the contract, leaving Victory the opportunity to make massive profits on the following records. Now, once bands have the following in the capital, they can always choose to self-release an album, meaning they pay for the studio time, CD production, and distribution themselves instead of having a record label bankroll it in exchange for a lion's share of the profits. Of course, self-releasing will likely be more profitable for the band, motivating them to get out from under these entry-level record labels once they have the ability to. So now that we know where everybody stands, 2011 sees a complicated legal situation, with two sides of the story depending on who you ask. A Day to Remember sues Victory Records, claiming Victory owes them $75,000 in royalty fees and a breach of contract. Victory claims that the band is trying to sue them in order to get out of the contract so they can move to a larger label with their newfound fame or self-release their next album. During this legal battle, the band continues touring and begins recording their next album, titled Common Courtesy, in mid-2012. The first single was released just before the holidays in 2012, and in March of 2013, they began touring to promote Common Courtesy. In interviews during this time, the band is deliberately vague about whether or not Common Courtesy will be released under the Victory label, and in mid-2013, the band settled the suit with a victory in court, allowing them to self-release Common Courtesy on their own label, A Day to Remember Records, with the stipulation that they still owed Victory two more records, sort of a compromise. In 2014, A Day to Remember headlined another international tour, with the band announcing another album in late 2015 titled Bad Vibrations. The album was finished and released in September of 2016. Now compared to Common Courtesy, Bad Vibrations was a bit of a stylistic change for the band. If you follow their albums and their name was Treason through Common Courtesy, you can hear their overall sound get lighter, with less screaming, more melodic riffs, and an overall more pop-influenced sound. 
Bad Vibrations really served to take it back to the beginnings of the band, with more down-tuned guitars, more dirty vocals, and a heavier stylistic influence overall. The members of A Day to Remember were actually presented with the keys to the city of Ocala in 2017. It's honestly kind of weird to think about, all things considered. You see, like, Ocala is a very rural town. I mean, other than A Day to Remember, the only thing that it's known for is being the horse capital of the world. This is a small town of like 63,000 people whose main street looks like a blend of Miami Vice and the 1950s. I know it's not what people typically think about when they think of Florida, but especially in Central Florida, when you get outside of like Disney, there's quite a bit of like rural country area. It's just weird to think that a rock metal band was given the keys to the city in such a small country town. Totally wouldn't expect it. The band stayed quiet for a few years, only releasing a collaboration with Marshmallow called Rescue Me in 2019 before announcing their seventh album, You're Welcome. The album was consistently delayed, with five singles being released during the delays. It was finally released in March of 2021. The only recent developments with the band have been the departure of bassist Joshua Woodard after being accused of prior misconduct to include a car crash that resulted in a death, along with a new single released in 2022 with no current plans for an album, at least any that are announced. Since Woodard's departure, the band has been on a tour titled Reassembled that has a sort of MTV unplugged feel to it where the band plays acoustic, somewhat country-style covers of their songs featuring instruments like a lap steel guitar. They even played a country-style cover of their song Downfall of Us All, originally created by one of their crew members, Alex Melton. It's honestly a really great show, and even though they're originally a rock band, they really make the country style work. This week, we'll be going after the tone of guitarists Neil Westfall and Kevin Scaff on the song City of Ocala off of Common Courtesy. So when it comes to guitars, Neil Westfall has had a relatively slow and easy progression. In the early days during the Treason and for those who have hard eras, Neil played a variety of Schecters with EMG 81 and 85 pickups, eventually moving on to a Les Paul and finally landing on his current ESP NW44, a signature model that's very obviously inspired by a Les Paul with a single cut body, mahogany body with a maple top, mahogany neck, and an ebony fingerboard, locking tuners, and a single bare knuckle aftermath humbucker in the bridge position with a single volume pot. This guitar is honestly just super simple. It's cut, it's dry, it's to the point, it's perfect for rhythm work and metal without all the frills, but it'll still set you back a cool 1800 bucks. Kevin Scaff's guitar history is a lot more convoluted. He starts out with a variety of Gibson Les Pauls before taking a detour through Stratocaster-inspired Sirs, finally landing on Deadstock PRS Custom 24s as his current choice over the last couple of years. The Custom 24 will set you back between $4,000 and $6,000, depending on which one you get, but they generally feature mahogany bodies, maple necks, and rosewood fretboards. The pickups of choice here are PRS 5815s, PRS's take on the classic PAF humbucker, along with a single volume and tone knob, three-way switch, locking tuners, and a PRS tremolo. Now the beauty of this tone is that since we'll be using such heavy distortion once we get to the amplifier section, the guitar we choose really doesn't matter so much as long as we stick with humbuckers to prevent a horrible amount of hum coming through once we crank the gain. If you want to go the Kevin Scaff route, you can always roll with a PRS SE Custom 24, the overseas manufactured version of the American-made Custom 24 that has all the same features with some minor changes. You've still got the mahogany body, but this time around you've got a maple neck with a rosewood fretboard, you've still got the 5815 pickups, 
and for the hardware, you've got standard tuners instead of locking tuners. Either way, you'll save quite a bit compared to the Made in America Custom 24, as this one is only 849 bucks. The best way for me to go about this tone has always been to use active EMGs, that 8185 set to be specific. Trust me, if there is any tone that I've spent the most amount of time trying to recreate, it's been this one, with countless hours spent in the garage growing up trying to sound just like the records. Here I'm going to be using my Schecter C1 Platinum for 599 bucks. This is a beast of a guitar that punches way above its price point with a mahogany body, set in carved heel maple neck, and an ebony fretboard. It's got EMG 8185s with a single volume and tone control, a three-way switch, and Grover locking tuners. I don't know what it is about Schecter guitars, but they always feel extremely comfortable to me, and this one is no exception. Normally, I'm a big fan of unfinished necks, or at least a very light finish, but the satin finish on this one is extremely fast and comfortable to play on. I don't feel slowed down one bit. With the amplifiers for this band, of course, it couldn't be simple. <laughs> They're using Kempers. So if you're not familiar with them, Kempers are a profile unit that look like the most high-tech, space-agey toaster you've ever seen. They go for almost 1900 bucks brand new, and the whole deal is you can hook your guitar rig up to them, and it'll create a digital copy of the rig, allowing you to store a whole library of amps, cabinets, and effects. Now, unlike a modeler, they're based on the exact amp that you profiled. It's a pretty neat concept. In an interview with Premier Guitar, both Kevin Scaff and Neil Westfall stated that they profiled their entire collection of over 30 different amp heads, but primarily used the Bogner Ecstasy, EVH 5153, and Marshall JCM 800 for the tones on their records. From what I can see, it seems like they're regularly using the EL34 version of the 5150, meaning all the amps we're working with here are high-gain metal amplifiers based on a British voicing. So one option here is the Marshall DSL-20 for $799. It's a high-gain, 20-watt, all-tube amplifier head with two channels, one for classic gain and one for ultra-gain. It's got a three-band EQ, presence and resonance controls, as well as a built-in attenuator for high and low power modes. Now normally here, I try to go with something that's very close to, if not a direct clone of whatever the original gear the artist used was, but I'm going to break the norm and I'm going to go a little crazy here. Neither Kevin Scaff nor Neil Westfall are particularly known for using oranges, but I'm going to go with my orange CR120. It's a solid state amplifier designed to emulate the sounds of the orange rocker an extremely popular high gain British voice amplifier for metal. It's a little unorthodox for what I normally do but I absolutely love the sound of it, and it works extremely well for this tone while saving us a bunch of money for only 500 bucks on the used market. We're going to set it to the dirty channel with the gain at 1 o'clock, bass at 1 o'clock, mid slightly scooped at 11 o'clock, treble at noon, volume and master to taste, and run it through an IR of a Bogner 4x12 cabinet, just like Neil reports he does in his interview. This will give us a great foundation for a dirty tone for this song. Our dirty tone is missing a few key elements that we can take care of with some easy-to-find pedals. The first is just a slight bit of compression. Kevin Scaff and Neil Westfall, like many metal players, don't actually use a compressor pedal to accomplish this compression. They use a classic overdrive, the TS9 in this case, 
to even out their levels just a bit before hitting the amp, controlling their dynamics and creating a much more uniform response. The Ibanez TS9 reissue currently goes for 109 bucks. Here, we're gonna save just a bit by using the Earthquaker device's plumes. It's got the same three knob control scheme as the TS9, level, tone, and gain, but a three-way mode toggle switch allows us to swap between symmetrical LED clipping, asymmetrical silicon diode clipping, and a straight op-amp boost. Since we're using this pedal as a form of compression, we can make things easier by throwing the toggle switch in position two, the op-amp boost mode, and setting it with a level at 11 o'clock, gain at just above minimum, and tone at 9 o'clock to tighten up our signal just a tad. The goal here is to get a more even volume between massive, ringing power chords and the more intricate fretwork that may have a little less intensity from our picking hand. Now if you're feeling froggy, you could always use the onboard reverb on the Orange CR120. It's got a digital reverb with three separate algorithms, spring, plate, and hall, and the onboard reverb really does sound pretty good. The only issue that I take with it is the only control is a single knob for more or less reverb, limiting the amount of tweaking you can do to the reverb signal to get it exactly where you want it. Here I'm going to be using my Fender Marine Layer Reverb for 179 bucks. Yeah, it's a little more expensive than the Hall of Fame, but I use it all the time. And at the end of the day, it really says something about this pedal for me. I'm always chasing another drive pedal or a modulation, because I feel like something could be better than what I'm using now. But when it comes to reverb, I always end up coming back to the marine layer. I've got a few other ones, like the MXR M300 and the Walrus Audio Fathom, as well as two analog spring reverbs. But for straightforward, standard reverb sounds, the marine layer is where it's at. Anyway... I've set it to the second hall variation with a filter switch on, pre-delay at 10 o'clock, reverb time at noon, dampening at 1 o'clock, and the level at 11 o'clock to add just a bit of depth to our tone and make it sound more three-dimensional and in the room with us. And that's it for a dirty tone. Super simple. In the bridge of the song, there is a short stint with a clean tone. If you're just planning to do a simple cover of the song, there's nothing wrong with swapping over to the clean channel of the orange for this part, as it's really not that major in the grand scheme of things. But this topic is all about tone chasing, so we're going to do it right. For the clean tone here, the Kempers are profiling an amp known as a Toneville Broadway a very boutique combo amp based on a sort of blend between a box AC30 and a vintage Fender. The feature set on this thing is actually pretty impressive. 20 watts of power with a three-band EQ, a push-pull master knob that allows you to cook the tubes without blowing your eardrums out, and a selectable mid-range frequency switch with three positions. These amps do come with quite the uh, price tag, however, clocking it at around 2500 bucks. Here, I'm going to be using my Vox AC15BR. It's a 1x12, 15-watt hybrid amp that includes a 12AX7 preamp tube in addition to a solid-state power section. It's a little light on features, with only a clean channel, 
two overdrive channels, a two-band EQ, and a master volume and reverb, but it gets the job done with a classic chimey Vox sound to die for. I've set it to the normal channel with a volume at 10 o'clock, treble at 2 o'clock, and bass at 10 o'clock to get us 90% of the way there to our clean bridge tone. Now for this clean tone, Kevin Scaff is using an Analog Man Prince of Tone, a single side of the coveted King of Tone dual overdrive. This pedal is inspired by a Marshall Blues Breaker and includes three controls for volume, tone, and drive, as well as a three-way toggle switch for overdrive, boost, and distortion modes. While these are selling from Analog Man for $148, they're consistently out of stock, meaning you're likely to pay closer to like $230 on the used market if you can find one. Kevin Scaff seems to use his in the overdrive mode, similar to a classic bluesbreaker. Now while we could always go with MXR's mass-produced licensed clone of the Prince of Tone, the aptly named Duke of Tone, my favorite bluesbreaker clone is easily the JHS Morning Glory. This thing is $199, and the additional features are easily worth the price of entry. It's got the same volume, drive, and tone controls, along with a two-position gain switch to take you from light crunch to full-on distortion, as well as a unique high cut switch to tame some of the ice picky treble content when used with certain rigs. Here I've set it with a high cut off, gain switch in the low gain position, volume at 9 o'clock, drive at 11 o'clock, and tone at 2 o'clock. We'll be using it with our AC15 to finish off our clean tone. And that rounds off both of our tones. While the original rig came out to $4,114, although if you counted both the guitars and the amps the Kemper was profiling rather than the Kemper itself, it would be over 16 grand. Our rig only clocks in at 1906, making a total savings of $2,208. To put that into Central Florida numbers, that's 15 tickets to Disney World with 120 bucks left over for food and souvenirs. <laughs> now, while I was super excited to do the Tone Chasing this week because it's a band that I've always been a huge fan of, I can't help but feel that effects-wise it was a little bland. While it's an awesome overdriven tone, it really is just that, an overdriven tone. I don't want to deny anybody their fix and make me a terrible person, so this week, we're going to talk about a concept that centers around the use of any sort of crazy effects you can think of. Wet dry and wet dry wet rigs. Now if you're a guitar player who spent any amount of time on the internet, you've probably seen these terms crop up before. People asking about which effects and amps they should use for their wet dry rigs, throwing around terms relating to mono and stereo, or even in and out of phase. Now I'll clear one thing up right away. We're not taking our rig to a water park, on a boat, or throwing it in the pool. Wet-dry rigs refer to having separate outputs, where one amp has your dry signal, typically just your guitar with maybe some overdrive distortion or fuzz, and additional amps or speaker cabinets, usually one or two, have your wet signal, which includes modulation effects like chorus, phaser, and flanger, as well as time-based effects like delay and reverb. But why would we want to do this? 
Why go through the hassle of setting up multiple different rigs just to separate our effects at the end when we could have them neatly organized on one pedal board with one amp? Well, the short answer to that is it sounds cool. Before we get started, the rig that I'm going to be using here is all the same. The guitar is my Fernandez Ravel with a Railhammer Nuevo 90 in the neck, and the amplifiers are going to be my Ignator Tweaker 15 and a Sparkbox Model T. The pedals that I'll be using are an MXR Super Comp, a Walrus Audio Voyager Overdrive, an Earthquaker Hizumidas Fuzz, a Walrus Audio Julia Chorus, and a Boss RE2 Space Echo Delay. Mostly because these are all pedals that I really love, but I don't get a chance to use them on the show nearly as often as I'd like. For the following demos, you're going to want to listen to these with either headphones, on studio monitors, or in the car for the best effect. Really, anywhere you've got the ability to listen to something in stereo. Otherwise, whatever you're listening to it on is going to mix everything down to mono and really defeat the point of a wet-dry rig. To demonstrate the difference between wet-dry, wet rigs and a standard setup before we dive off the deep end, let's have our dessert first and listen to the end result up front. Here's what this rig would sound like if I played it as normal throwing the first three effects into the front of the amp and the modulation effects into the loop. And here's what it sounds like when I use a wet-dry-wet setup. Quite the difference, huh? If you want to learn how to do this yourself, you've come to the right place. Let's get into it, shall we? To begin, wet-dry rigs or wet-dry-wet rigs involve splitting the output of your effects. To accomplish this, we first need to classify our effects as dry or wet effects. While there's no hard and fast rule as to which is which, a great way to start is by treating your compressors, EQs, boosts, overdrives, distortions, and fuzzes as your dry effects pretty much anything that adjusts the volume or distorts your signal. Effects that would typically glow in the loop, like modulation or time-based effects, are usually considered your wet effects, with things like pitch shifters and envelope filters being able to swing either way depending on how they interact with the rig. For this rig that I've got here, the Super Comp, Voyager, and Hizumidas are my dry effects, and the Julia and the Space Echo are my wet effects. Our dry effects are going to be run as normal, We'll put them in between the guitar and the output of our amplifier to get our dry sound, like this. Now normally, this is where we'd put our wet effects into the effects loop. But if we're using these wet effects at very extreme settings, it can muddy up the guitar signal to where we lose definition and clarity. The notes seem to run together, and the overall signal sounds extremely messy and washed out, like so.
Now, if we want to find a way to retain the clarity of the dry signal, we need to find a way to separate our wet and dry signals, allowing both of them to come through so that our listeners can hear the definition of the dry signal with the flavor of the wet signal. The correct way to do this is honestly pretty complicated, not to mention very budget intensive. It involves using a line-out box, which is essentially a splitter that converts your speaker-level output to a line-level output and a speaker-level output. You'll send the speaker output to a single cabinet, and then typically the line-level output is sent to a series of rack mount effect units to get your wet effects. The output of the rack effects is then fed into a power amp, such as a crown, which drives either one or two smaller wet cabinets. While this is 100% the right way to do things, it gets pretty expensive pretty quickly, not to mention taking up a whole host of real estate storage space. If you're trying to record a wet-dry rig at home, let's talk about some easier ways to accomplish this. The first method of accomplishing this is simply called wet-dry, where we have our dry signal coming out of one speaker cabinet and our wet signal coming out of the other. One of the easiest methods of doing this actually involves using two amplifiers. Here, I'm running my Ignator Tweaker 15 as the main amplifier with my Sparkbox Model T serving as the power amplifier. I run my dry effects into the input of the tweaker, then I run the effects end of the tweaker into the input of my wet effects and the output of the wet effects into the effects return of the Model T, bypassing its preamp to just use its power amp. We'll mic up each speaker cabinet separately and record the whole rig at the same time, panning the wet and dry slightly left and right to provide some separation between the two. It'll sound like this. Now when it comes to wet-dry-wet, it's a little more complex. With wet-dry-wet rigs, we need to use three speaker cabinets. The left and the right side are our wet rigs, with the center cabinet being our dry rig. This is much more difficult to accomplish with just two amplifiers. The amp you're using as your power amplifier will need to have two separate speaker outputs. You'll need a total of three cabinets, and you'll mic them all separately, with your wet mixes panned to the left and right, and your dry rig dead center. The advantage of doing things this way is it allows you to take full advantage of stereo effects. Units like ping pong delay, panning tremolo, and stereo reverb sound extremely beautiful and lush when used in a wet dry wet rig, giving them the ability to pan between the two wet speakers while the dry keeps the clarity going in the middle. When done correctly, it'll sound like this. However, let's do a little thought experiment real quick. Where do you want your tracks to sound their absolute best? On the recordings, right? Chances are that when you're playing live, your wet-dry-wet rig that you worked so hard to perfect will end up having less than stellar results for two reasons. The first, only the audience standing directly in the middle of the stage will get the full panned effect of your rig. Anyone standing to either side of the stage will end up with half the mix being stronger than the other half. The second, it's highly likely that your sound guy running the front of house will simply mix your signal down to mono in the first place. If you're playing in a gig with a PA, this means that all the stereo panning will go out the window once it actually hits the main speakers for the venue, neglecting the entire purpose of the wet-dry wet rig. 
Since we want to focus on our recording as much as possible, there's a quick and easy way to get an excellent sounding wet-dry wet rig without needing numerous speaker cabinets, not to mention having to worry about phasing issues and bleed with your microphones. What I've done here is I've recorded the front end of my dry rig through a DI box into my interface as a single mono track. It's going guitar, Voyager, then straight into the interface. From here, I can either use a reamp box if I want to use a genuine amp, or an amp sim, and I'll take the mono track, run it through the amplifier, out of the effects end, and into my wet effects, bringing the stereo output of my wet effects back into two mono tracks on the interface, one for the left side and one for the right. This captures the movement and the beauty of these units. From here, I run the mono dry channel and the two wet channels through a cabinet simulator of my choice, allowing me to now have full control over the panning and placement of these tracks in a mix, giving me a result like the following. Works out pretty well, doesn't it? While this may not be the most convenient solution for any sort of live rig, when it comes to getting the tracks to sound exactly like you want them to on the record, there's really no beating this method. It's quick, it's easy, it gives you tons of control, and a great, repeatable result every time. So did you guys know that Jimi Hendrix was once kidnapped after a show? When Hendrix's career really began to take off, he was actually kidnapped after a show at the, at the Salvation Club in Greenwich Village, New York. Apparently, he followed somebody in an attempt to buy some cocaine, and instead ended up being held hostage in somebody's apartment inside Manhattan. The kidnappers contacted Michael Jeffrey, Jimmy's manager, in an attempt to hold Jimmy for ransom in exchange for Jeffrey's management contract. Michael Jeffrey actually hired his own crew of not-so-nice people to seek out Hendrix himself rather than release the contract, and he was found two days later completely unharmed. If you guys didn't catch last episode, some exciting personal news here is that I finally got a website up and running for the podcast. You can head on over to pedalsandpickups.com and check out a glossary with a little write-up on every single episode, as well as check out links to my Patreon and my Teespring merch store. If you don't want to buy a t-shirt, you can always shoot me an email or a DM on any one of my socials, telling me your best corny dad joke, and you'll be entered to win a free podcast t-shirt. We give one away every month, and I'll pick the next winner at the end of July. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. I know this episode was a little rough to get through, especially me stuttering a lot. Uh, I'm very sore. So I think I'm going to hang it up for this week. Uh, I really do appreciate, you know, sitting here, getting to hang out with you guys again. It's always a blast. It's one of the best parts of my week, even if it doesn't feel too comfortable right now. But I hope it wasn't too bad, you know, as a listener. And I appreciate you guys sticking it out and bearing with me. Anyway, I'll see you all next week. For now, take care.